I'm here talking to Siobhan Roberts about various people in the world of logic and uh, mathematics. I just read a, a really interesting book about Gödel by Richard Teason. Oh, right. I heard about it, yeah. yeah. And I hadn't... I used to know all about Gödel, and I hadn't gone back into it for a while, so it was fun to, to have that refresh on my memories. There was a, a little paper that Gödel wrote, uh, some considerations leading to the probable conclusion that the true power of the continuum is Aleph 2. And that was something I found in my mailbox at, at Rutgers hmm. when I was a grad student. And somebody at Xerox didn't put it there. And then I got really into it. Right. And, uh, and you never, did you ever figure out who put it there? It could have been my advisor. Huh. He was a, kind of a strange man. Eric Allen Tuck. <laughs> but then I, I did a seminar on that that little paper for the other grad students. And uh, at that time I was taking a seminar at the institute that was run by Ngaisi Takayuti. It was a set theory seminar. He was a fellow there and we were just getting mm -hmm. together once a week. And then I guess he told Gödel that I was working on this. So then that's when Gödel invited me to come see him. Uh-huh, right. Which was the, the high point of my, mm -hmm. my young life. He was the guru. Yeah. It's a big deal. And then later it turned out that that stuff he'd written didn't really work out. Solovey worked it all out and uh, in, in Girls Collected Papers. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't really solid. There were things wrong with it. But uh, yeah, meeting Girdle was the big deal. Because mm -hmm. I was 20. Gee, I don't know, 23, something like that. It was the 60s, so he was the guru, he was the man. Right, for sure. Yeah. Those were the days, sort of, second heyday of logic, I understand. Yeah, yeah that's true. I mean, Cohen really kicked things off, too, with the forcing. Mm -hmm. What year was that? Was that? It was around, that was also very early, because... Gödel had proved the consistency of the continuum hypothesis. And uh, you wrote a little article in The New Yorker about this. Really? Didn't you? Oh, in The New Yorker? Oh, well, I wrote... <laughs> I thought you said he did. Like, you did. I need to look that up. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote a an article last spring about a, a Gödel night course. That's night right. Course yeah, Brooklyn. you were taking it. Yeah, yeah which yeah. was uh, quite a heady. Uh-huh. Sounded like fair, despite the yeah casual yeah. locale, but yeah, I sort of you know let it all wash over me in mm -hmm. waves, and I take in bits and pieces. But it's a bit yeah, it's a steep learning curve. Uh, it is. You can say that again. And I had uh, Conway was a good teacher, uh -huh. <laughs> but I've probably dumped some of that. Yeah, yeah. At that, when I saw that, I thought you were going to write a book about Gödel. I sort of thought about it for a bit and asked around, and um, Dana Scott, for one, said that he didn't think there needed to be another book about Girdle. Maybe not. Um, I think Juliet Kennedy disagreed. Mm -hmm. She thought it would be a great idea. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there is a definitive sort of 
Well, there are. The, yeah, there's a definitive one out there. Um, there was one by a lady, Gold, Goldberg. It was... You know, I'm trying to remember. It's, I spoke to you. It's going to come back to me. Teasen refers to it. And I, I remember reading it, but it Teasen's book was really surprisingly good. It was just a little book. It's short, yeah. He just died, poor guy. Yeah, I saw that when I was looking up the book. He was here at San Jose State, so I knew him pretty well. And so is that book, is it his life, or is it mostly his work, or a combination of... Well, Teasen wrote a longer book, a more complicated book about Gödel. It's sort of a a pro professional level philosophy book about mm -hmm. uh, phenomenology, which has always confused me so much. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that, uh, but then he did this little book for a company that does simply books, simply Charlie. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is such a lightweight label. It, the book, I don't know how strong it'll be, but it was, it had everything in there. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's it's worth looking at. Yeah, but Cohen's the forcing that just happened around 1968 when Cohen proved the independence of the continuum hypothesis. Right. John Dawson is the other. Oh yeah, John. That, that's quite a good book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's one by another lady, a woman. Oh, Rebecca Goldstein. That's who I'm trying to think the of. Incompleteness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's not quite so much a pop science book. It's also a little more of a, I don't know, philosophical meditation, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, there's room for another one, certainly. But it's, I think it's kind of cool that you're just veering off and doing Verena, because that's fresh and mm -hmm. it's... It's unexpected. I think it, you know, Yeah. can be kind of unorthodox in certain ways. Because mm -hmm. she wasn't, uh, she didn't have a spectacular career, but she was definitely brilliant, and mm -hmm. she was so passionate about what she was doing. She just kept doing it right up until the end. I mean, she mm -hmm. had the atlas of finite groups at her bedside in the hospice. I think you know when oh, she yeah? died. So uh, the atlas of finite groups. <laughs> I've seen that book. Yeah, it's it's a massive red book. Yeah, well, Conway liked that stuff a lot too. Oh yeah, well he's that's his book. One of his books. Uh huh. Um, oh, he wrote that book? With, yeah, there's yeah, three, a bunch of four guys. authors, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a big part when you described it. Yeah, that was never my bag. <laughs> Not for everybody. Yeah, I like the infinite. Well, you know, there's the famous line, the, the infinite case is easy, the, mm -hmm. the finite will take hard. Right. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So are you still dabbling in these waters, or what are you thinking about these days? Well, I pretty much, I don't really do much uh, mathematics. Or, well, when I came to San Jose State in 86, I started teaching uh, computer science, because the department was math and computer science, because mm -hmm. it was, people didn't have degrees in computer science then. Right. And then, uh, either I could teach calculus, you know, and do a a logic course for grad students once every year or two, or I could just go and learn something new. And I said, mm -hmm. I'll just do that. Mm -hmm. And that, so that's what I did for 20 years. I became a computer scientist. So I never took a course in it, but I, I taught pretty much all the courses and I worked at Autodesk for a while. 
with the pros and right. got a feel for that. And it was fun because it was, in math, when you can't prove something, then you're done. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or if you write a proof and there's a mistake, it's, you know, it's not worth anything. It's just nothing. And when you run a program, then even if you have a mistake, the program might do something, you know. It's, it's more of an empirical thing, computer programming. And you're also the other thing is you're getting this feedback. This machine is, is showing you stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's so much easier than doing math. Hmm. It's just no comparison. Uh, I hadn't thought of that in that way, that it, there's sort of there's a bit of an interaction. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like a physical science. Because hmm. physics, you can always do an experiment, and, mm -hmm. and you'll get something, you know. It's not like you work two years and you don't have yeah. anything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I like that a lot. And I like the, I like the sort of, I got into the kinds of computer images, well, fractals I loved, and then there's these things called cellular automata. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, Conway, the mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. But then there's ones you can get that have more complicated states. Like that painting I did there is of a, a cellular automata. Oh, very nice. Yeah. It's a reaction diffusion rule. Hmm. I could show you the rule later if you want. Yeah. And uh, so those, I really is love that those. Yours? Those are Sylvia's paintings. Those are shells. So you're both painters, my goodness. Yeah, and our daughter's a painter too. That's Georgia. Oh. Hmm. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and Isabel's an artist as well. Hmm. Or, my son is artistic, but not a painter. Hmm. He makes his money running a an ISP in San Francisco. It's mm -hmm. like there's very few independent ISPs, right? Because it's all Comcast, you know, mm -hmm. AT and T. But San Francisco, they've got a lot of high tech, and then there are these freaky, quirky people there. And, Mm -hmm. They don't really want to yeah, sign up with Comcast, right. you know, huh. the great Satan. So they, Rudy has a wisp. He's got like 3,000 wireless antennas. So it's a wireless internet service provider. Wow. So that's that's what he does. And what's it called? Monkey Brains. Monkeybrains.net. Hmm. And how many of those exist out there? Are there many? Wisps? In, yeah, internet. Or independent. In San Francisco, there's really, I don't know if there's even one other independent one. Huh. It's just the monsters, the dinosaurs, hmm. and then there's monkey brains. I wonder if there's a bit of a. He could probably expand. Like, you'd think there'd be an appetite for. for well, that to elsewhere. some extent, he's expanding. Yeah. Uh, but it's they go and put the antennas in themselves. He's got like three thousand antennas on the roofs. Hmm. And uh, he did this funny thing. <laughs> they needed a... Well, every time, if you're a customer, he'll come and put a, a wisp antenna on your roof. It looks kind of like a TV dish antenna. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, but he'll also fix it up so that thing then becomes sort of a, a node mm -hmm. in the network. Right. And in principle, the people that live in your building could, at that point, get monkey brain service, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's sort of growing out. But then there was this gap where they had to move like a terabyte across a few blocks, and you can't bury a wire. You can't bury cable fiber because that that sort of 
it belongs to the, mm -hmm. the big guys. It's all licensed, very complicated. Right. Mm -hmm. So you got this this crazy thing. It was like a Lebanese military infrared laser. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Second hand or something, and that's what he uses to to zap, you know, the signal across a few blocks. Huh. He's quite a character, my son. Uh, there's a sort of a this thriving bohemian scene in San Francisco, of course. Mm -hmm. And they have this thing called Dorkbot. It's called Dorkbot, people doing weird things with electricity. Oh, yeah. And they meet about once a month, or maybe every two months. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, like what sort of weird things? Well, like Rudy might have given a talk there on his network and then waved around this laser, which is about, you know, really very large. <laughs> and mm -hmm. pretended that it was turned on. Oh my gosh, yeah. Or the Survival Research Laboratory. Do you know about them? Oh, that's yeah. this thing. There's this man called Mark Pauline. And he, uh, he's been doing this since the 80s. He builds these fairly large, menacing robots. Mm -hmm. And they blow fire. And he would do these shows in the streets in San Francisco, like under a freeway ramp. I remember one we went to, they had a pile of burning pianos <laughs> and this very large robot just like going around on treads and just pounding on it, you know. And, hmm. and then scattered all around were these things that appeared to be military bombs. They were like plastic explosives and, mm -hmm. and printed, you know, for frontline demolition purposes only. Mm -hmm. And we took a couple of them, and then we got scared. <laughs> like, I, I don't think we should set this off. Really? And then, it turned out that was a prank of his. They were plaster of Paris. Uh-huh. And then right. they were found all over the city the next day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. He, uh, he lost his thumb and then replaced it with his big toe. They grafted it. Hmm. Yeah, Mark Pauline, SRL. Mark Pauline. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Just developing my story list here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, you could definitely do some interesting stuff with like that. Also, Monkey Brand sounds like a good one. But uh, I don't remember exactly. We sort of went down a lot of levels there. <laughs> Top up the stack, I don't know. Yes, yeah, so how do we get back? Well, what are, are you writing these days, or what are oh, you yeah. doing? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, so I taught computer science at San Jose State, and all along, I've always viewed my primary career as being a writer. Mm -hmm. I was, that's what I wanted to do, and I'm about to start my 40th book. Wow. And it'll be my 23rd novel. Hmm. And, uh... That's incredible. It's, yeah, just, it's like snow, you know, a little every year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... But, I've, yeah, I've been very persistent. I, I liked writing, and I'm sure you know what that's like. It's just satisfying. It's a craft. You're, mm -hmm. you're in there, and you're marking it up and making it better. It's, it's very pleasant. The mm -hmm. world goes away. Yeah. You're in, you're in your, your space there. And, uh, and I taught until... My brother managed to retire when I was, he was 58, and then that... It bugged me, so then I said, I've got to find a way to do that. 
And right. so then uh, I, I did actually manage to retire when I was about 58 from teaching. And right. One thing about being a professor, they don't, the salary isn't really that great. There was, when they were having the internet bubble in the early 90s, I had this student, he's a lousy student, he's a B minus student, maybe a C student, mm -hmm. and he comes in and shows me he's got a $90,000 contract where he's going to be a Java programmer somewhere. And he's, this guy was not a good Java programmer. <laughs> and he said, well, I know I missed one of your tests, but why don't, why don't you mark me up to a B plus since I <laughs> Right. And I didn't. Jeez. But anyway, the, the point I was getting at there, although they don't, the salary's not wonderful, it's, it's okay. And of course the hours are great. You can't beat teaching. Mm -hmm. and, and then they still have a, a pension, which is becoming something of a rarity. Mm -hmm. So it made it possible for me to retire when I was, uh, I don't know, about 60. Mm -hmm. And Schwarzenegger, I always liked having him as a governor because he was a science fiction character, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, usually most politicians don't even know what science fiction is, you know? Yeah. So it made me happy that we had the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what his politics were. And then they wanted to weed out some professors, so they, there's some deal they did where they would give you a, a golden parachute if you retire. They'd mm -hmm. give you an extra year of service credit. Right. So I took that and uh, I started, I figured I could write a little bit faster. So uh, I, I usually, for most, a long time I was writing about a book a year, a book every two years. And uh, the thing is now I sort of came to the end of the road with my publishers. Uh, they, it's hard for me to sell a book to a commercial publisher now. Oh yeah. The sales, you know, they're down to people, I don't know, how many people buy the new Rolling Stones record, you know? It's right. like, it's, I mean, I think the books are getting better, you mm -hmm. know, but it's that the flash, the bloom is off the rose. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the thing is, right when this happened, um, well, Tor Books, they put out my autobiography which was nice, mm -hmm. uh, Nested Scrolls. And then they were like, okay, we did this for you, Rudy, but now you've got a new novel. It's about Alan Turing and William Burroughs having a homosexual love affair. Which, <laughs> that book needed to be written, obviously. Mm -hmm. But that, it's just really pissing in the wind to try to... I mean, they're having a Turing logic conference that year, and I couldn't really get them to... Hmm. Give me a play to that book. Right. But, uh, I mean, it's the best analysis I've ever seen of, of Turing's personality. I mean, <laughs> I, I really looked into it. You know? Right. But mm -hmm. the, the theory is that the British spies wanted to kill Turing. You know, you've probably mm -hmm. heard that theory. Mm -hmm. And so they did. They came there, but then accidentally they killed this. Turing's lover, who was visiting from Norway. Turing had promised he wouldn't sleep with men, but then he parsed the logic, and as mm -hmm. long as they weren't from England. Right. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So, and then the other thing he was doing, the end was doing reaction diffusion cellular automata that would grow biological forms. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, he has this sort of funny paper that, it's a long paper, and he did all the calculations by hand because he didn't have that kind of computer. And he computed this blob, which was the spot you'd see on the back of a brindle cow. Hmm. A sort of funny picture. And so then I had the idea that, well, he'd be able to grow a face. So he got the face, his friend, you know, who the British poisoned him with cyanide. Mm -hmm. And then he took a little scrap of the guy's nose and grew that guy's face. And he grew a copy of his face. And he put his face under the dead guy. Uh -huh. Put the guy's face under his. And then he, he figured he'd take off. And so he went to Tangier, where Bill was living at that time. Uh-huh. And then they get in together and... Turing starts pushing this this tissue, you know, regeneration thing. You know, the, he'll grow this glob of something, and sort of undifferentiated tissue, which was something Burroughs liked to talk about. It was mm. one of his obsessions. And then uh, I call them skugs, <laughs> S K U G. And uh, anyway, then they go to the U S. and they get involved with. Stanislaw Ulam and an H bomb test. And mm -hmm. It's a great book. But I'll have to read it. Yeah, I can give you a copy. I love that. And I, I couldn't publish it though, and because it's just too off the. T See, SF has gotten it's gotten a little more narrow. Mm -hmm. Right. With the you know, like fantasy too. It's fantasy used to be anything you know, and now it's it's Tolkien, mm -hmm. something like Tolkien. And SF is, I don't know, SF is very amorphous. You do almost every week, not every week, but at least once a month, the front book on the Sunday Times Book Review is a science fiction book. Mm -hmm. But they never say it's science fiction. Yeah. Because it's visionary, you know, whatever. There was one this last week, too. The Doctorow's book, Cory Doctorow? Or? No, because he's admittedly a science fiction writer. Mm -hmm. There's one by a woman, it was something about a space station. The review was by Va Va Vandermeer. Hmm. It wasn't this week, it was last week. But yeah, they never put the word science fiction on them. It's one of those things, it's like, I don't know. It's like being an R&B musician. And then <laughs> Elvis comes along or something. You know? mm -hmm. But anyway... But then the thing is, that happened right at the historical moment when it became very easy to self-publish. And so that's, that saved my ass. Right. So, so how logistically do you do that? I'm curious. It's easier than you... Well, it's easy and it's hard. I mean, it sounds easy, but then doing it... And I started from being a, a professor of computer science, you mm -hmm. know, so it shouldn't be that. Right. But basically, you write... You get your book into a, a really nice format. Now, depending what level you want to go to, uh, you can just be a Word doc, you know, that you've really formatted sweetly. Mm -hmm. But then at some point, that's really not enough. Well, for the purposes of a Kindle book, that's enough. You can get it in a nicely form formatted Word doc. Mm -hmm. Then you save it. Uh, you can actually submit the Word doc to KDP. That, that auto Amazon has this page... I think Kindle developer or something, mm. and uh, then they'll they'll munge it and turn it into a, a Kindle book, 
and then it's listed, and you you fill out some forms, and it's published. Hmm. So it's it's really easy. Oh, yeah. The one thing that's slightly tricky is getting the table of contents. <laughs> For whatever reason, you know. Yeah. It's something. Bigger. Yeah, but uh, there's this product that's free called Caliber, C A L I B R E, and that if you can make you can make your Kindle at home. The Kindle format is proprietary, but you can make something called a Mobi format, mm -hmm. which is essentially the same as the Kindle format. And so Caliber, and it doesn't like Word files, so you save the word as an RTF file. Do you know that? It's called rich text format. Right, yeah, yeah. It's like generic word processors. People who don't like Microsoft, they'll be using that. Mm -hmm. And then, so Caliber, you can feed it an RTF, and it'll munge it right into a Mobi. And then you can actually copy the Mobi from your hard drive onto your Kindle. You, you plug your Kindle mm -hmm. into the... Mm -hmm. The Kindle has a charging cable, and you can put that little USB thing at the end okay. into the USB port on your computer. Right. And then it's just like a an outside hard drive. Hmm. And you can just drag the, the Mobi over there. Hmm. Or you can sell the Mobi yourself. There's a thing, there's a site called eJunkie. And if you pay them $10 a month, uh, you can upload the files that you want to sell there. Mm -hmm. And then people can go there and charge it on their MasterCard and download it. And of course, the real way to, to sell it is to put it on Amazon, which is 80% of the ebook business. The others are just fighting over the crumbs. Yeah. Nook is pretty much gone. Uh, I, I book is still holding steady. Yeah. Since it's Apple, it's it's hard to put that book on iBook. Mm. You have to own a Mac, or you can't do it. Right. <laughs> but then to make the paperback, that's another story. Because then a print book has to be formatted more nicely than a Kindle book. I mean, a Kindle book. The formatting almost doesn't matter, because on your Kindle, do you use a Kindle? I've never used a Kindle, no. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't appeal. I mean, initially it was, you know... I used to I resist was, them, but... I resisted, and it just didn't end well, now that my, in the end. Now my eyes have gotten a little weaker, I like that I can set the font size. Yeah. I like yeah. that a lot. I can understand that. There's also, right now I'm researching for uh, the return to the hollow earth, and the mm -hmm. book starts with a trip around Cape Horn. And so I'm reading Richard Dana's book, Two Years Before the Mast, mm -hmm. and there's these great quotes in there that I just want to... When you're historical books, sometimes I'll just take the quotes and just put them into my book, mm -hmm. and then just edit them and munge on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you highlight in Kindle, then you can just say export, and it'll email you an email with all the things you highlighted. Right. Yeah, so, that's nice. So you don't have to copy it. Yeah. But, and anyway, I just wanted to make the point with Kindle, the formatting when you're reading it, you're free to set the font size. You can choose the font, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. So it's so what you as the Kindle producer do doesn't even matter that much. Right. Now the other thing is if you want to do a print book, uh, which is higher up the food chain, you have to use a, a program called InDesign. It's made by Adobe. Mm -hmm. Or pay somebody to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, there there's uh, there's these sort of parasitic people that say they'll help you publish your book and they might charge you 10 grand. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's 
but you can buy in design for five hundred dollars and spend seven months learning how to use it. <laughs> if you're a computer science professor, retired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, we retired lots of time. Yeah, but it is nice to know how to use it. It's power, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I can make a really nice looking book now, and then I I print it into a PDF file, which I guess you know what a PDF is. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Okay, and then I upload the PDF to Amazon as something called CreateSpace. And then uh, you also make a cover, you know, you use uh, use Photoshop and mm -hmm. right. screw that in various ways. And then, uh, then you've got a paperback. Hmm. Maybe I've been turning burrows here. Yeah, I thought this mm. book would hit as a literary book. I was disappointed. Mm. It got like zero, absolutely zero mm. attention. Yeah, it's hard to get attention, I find. Well, if you blog, you know, I have Twitter and Facebook, mm -hmm. and I usually run a Kickstarter for a book like this. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. This is the first one I self-pubbed, so I didn't realize that was the missing part of the puzzle. Oh, yeah? If you do the Kickstarter, you can make ten thousand. Hmm. You, know, you might be able to get more. You're better. Oh, than I don't I know. <laughs> you could be. You I'm might sure you a little bit get... more reach than you were. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I'm, I bet you could get seven. Hmm. Interesting. And that's yeah. see that takes care of the advance. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're in the world of low advances, you know. Mm -hmm. Which some usually your first book you can get a good advance, but then after a while they get a sense of. Yeah, if you're your track who they're dealing with, around, yes. yeah, <laughs> and try to track. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I kept writing even though I wasn't getting published because I could publish myself. Mm-hmm. And like, just now, it looks like it, I think if the deal goes through, a publisher's going to reissue a bunch of these under their own imprint. Hmm. That's nice. I think so. Mm. They won't use my design, which after a while you get into this control thing. You know? Yeah. So you mean at the cover or the, the text too? Uh, what I worry about is the font size. Oh, yeah. That's kind of a thing of mine. Mm -hmm. Because I'm 70, I guess. Yeah, that's very accessible. It's, it's nice. And how far along is your next book? Are you just starting? No, really, sir. Yeah, I've been. I've got it in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> it's not this. There it is. <laughs> yeah, here it is. Scrap of paper. Yeah, scrap. I always like to have a scrap. See, and then I carry this around. Right. And I mark it up. Mm-hmm. And I just finished marking it. And gradually it grows. Well, I mark it up and then I type yeah. that in, mm -hmm. and then I get some momentum and I'll end up writing a little bit more. You mm know, -hmm. I always do a separate document, a notes document, and that's in there. I've been writing in the notes document since January, and you know about how what should I do? I can't do this. I've never known how to write a novel at all. <laughs> I was going to ask if it was all pleasure for you, so you have the the misery element as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the black spot. Right. 
can I do this? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? <laughs> can I sell it? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, who will read it? Nobody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All that good stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was the economy book your first book? I don't remember now. No, I did. Um, it was really a sequel of sorts to the Coxter book. Oh, yeah. The biography of Coxter. Those two are kind of a pair in that Yes. Well, they yeah. Coxter led me to Conway, and they were they uh-huh. were close. Well, the Conway book would have been more commercial, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Coxter is you know that's an aficionado's geometer. Yeah, he's a little more obscure. Although it did have, it did sort of take off. I mean, it sold in. Uh, it was a different. You know, that was what two thousand three. So. Mm-hmm. You're different Canadian. era. Yeah. He's Canadian. Well, he was British, and he uh-huh. came to U of T because he didn't get the, the position he was hoping for at Cambridge, so then he had uh-huh. a good offer at U of T. Yeah. Um, but he really, that book, you know, I was surprised it sold it in foreign markets on his coattails, you know. Mm-hmm. I should look for at For sure. I, I probably have an extra copy or some, <laughs> somewhere right, that I nice. can send you. Nice. For yeah. sure. Yeah, I, when I was writing of the fourth dimension, I was interested Mm-hmm. He did, of course, cool things with that. Yeah, he was the master. Up until eight, he said he could, he could manage. Mm-hmm. Up until eight, and then beyond that, it was beyond him. Oh, you could imagine eight-dimensional polyhedra. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. Wolfram says. Is the if you wanted to, def- what what would it be like to have your intelligence amplified? And he said it would be a matter of just being able to persist further in a line of thought. Hmm. It might mm-hmm. be the same type of thought, but right. most people are going to quit it at three. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I tried four a little bit, but that was just about as far as I could go. Yeah, that was my, <laughs> my first love, the fourth dimension. When I first heard about it in science fiction books, I thought, mm-hmm. this is really, I want to know about this. And tell me about your work with um, James Glick's book, Chaos. What did you That was a, an interesting there? project. Uh, well, I'd, I, uh, I was interested in cellular automata, and I'd gotten into them because we were living in Lynchburg, Virginia for, I think, five years before we moved out to California. And there I taught for two years, and then for three or four years I was trying to make it as a freelance writer. Mm-hmm. And I was scrounging around for magazine assignments. And uh, that's when Wolfram actually first broke out. There's an article he had in Scientific American. Mm-hmm. And so I did an article on Wolfram. And then I went up to Cambridge, Massachusetts and talked to other, the other cellular automata people. There are these two characters called Norman Margolis and Tommaso Toffoli, and they were great. They were maniacs, mm-hmm. and they'd made this piece of hardware that so you could run cellular automata really fast, mm-hmm. and uh, they had some programming language for it that it was crazy. It was a reverse Polish language called Fourth. It was just like instead of writing A plus B, you'd have to write. I think it was A B plus. It was just insane, you know, and they'd write programs this way. So it was great. So that, uh, 
I got into cellular automata and I got out here and I started teaching computer science and I got San Jose State to buy me one of these cards that these these guys in Cambridge were making. It was called the CAM, the CAM 6 board. And you could shove it into a slot of a just the early IBM PC, you know, like the one of the first models. Mm -hmm. And then you'd get really fast CAs on your screen. Hmm. Now we can get them without using the accelerator board, but then we didn't. And so I went to this conference that they had every year. It was called the Hackers Conference. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. And, yeah, you would like it there. Though it's, well, probably not what it used to be. This was like the second one. I think the first one might have had to do with Stephen Levy's book. I think maybe that sparked mm -hmm. it. I can't quite remember. But uh, anyway, John Walker from Autodesk was there. And I... It was just sort of a party, you know? We stayed up all night. I was smoking pot and drinking and all these crazy hackers were just doing these incredibly strange things, you know, and showing them the cellular automata. Mm -hmm. And Walker liked them. And then he was like, I bet I could do this in software without an accelerator board. Hmm. And he's, he's like a, I don't know, he's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of programmers. <laughs> he, he wrote AutoCAD. Mm -hmm. So he, 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 he helped found the company, Autodesk. So he wrote a, a software version of it. And so then I basically went on leave from San Jose State and worked at Autodesk for three or four years. And Walker made this product called CA Lab for Cellular Automata Laboratory. And these days you can't really sell programs like that. People expect to get them for free online. Mm -hmm. But there's this window when hobbyists were looking for cool things to put on their PC. Mm. And they sold some of them. You know, it wasn't a huge success, but they sold enough. So then they said, well, let's do another one. And Walker was gung-ho. He said, well, let's have the Autodesk Science Library, and we'll have a series of mm -hmm. programs. Mm -hmm. And then James Glick's book had just hit then, and it was great. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then I, I sort of knew Glick a little bit because he'd been at a... I'd gone to a conference at in Santa Fe at Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. I think it was the first Artificial Life Conference. I think Lick was there. Or they also had some cellular automata conferences there. Yeah. It, was, it was cool. And that was before the Santa Fe Institute. They were sort of sponsored by the Los Alamos National Labs. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so then we had the idea, well, let's do software to go with Glick's Chaos. Mm. And we approached Glick, and he, he liked the idea. And uh, at this time, Windows didn't exist. And we weren't really into Mac programming. So we did it as a just a DOS program on the PC. Where the DOS programs, maybe you've never even seen them. They're just horrible. You have a black screen, and there's a command line. Mm -hmm. Though in a way, a Unix screen looks like that. Right. And, but you fire it up, and we get in the graphics mode. And we did the Lorentz attractor and fractals and uh, strange attractors and magnets and pendulum. That was a good one. Where, that's this thing where if you put, just like those toys they had, you put like three magnets down there and then you have a 
little pendulum bob and you swing it, it just does this, you know, incredibly chaotic. Mm -hmm. It never settles down. So I went through Glick's book basically and found like eight different things in there that I could imagine writing software demos of. Right. So I, I wrote the, the thing is I hardly knew how to program. <laughs> I just started teaching, you know, and I didn't even know what I didn't know, you know, I was so ignorant. That's the it. best state to be in, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I would write these programs and they would work, so, you know, they'd be buggy. And then Autodesk got another guy who was a professional programmer. He ended up writing the code that eBay used, I think, unless I'm mistaken. So he did well there. But he was at Autodesk then, and he sort of didn't like me. His name was Josh Gordon. Because he thought, I, he wasn't a guy who'd done, many programmers didn't actually go to college. You know, mm -hmm. they just started doing it. Yeah. And, so he didn't like that I was a professor. <laughs> Little did you know. And I was really fulfilled his worst images because I was a professor, and then I, I barely could program. You know, which so, <laughs> you know he could program like a like the piano. But we got it worked out. And we got it sorted out. And it was a nice program, and Glick was pretty happy with it. But then, as soon as we issued it, then he's like, "Well, now I want you to do a Windows version." And everyone's oh, like, yeah. "No, no." This was so hard. <laughs> and Autodesk lost money on that program because they went... There's this thing... They had this division called Tech Pubs with like dozens of people. Mm -hmm. And they started working on the manual too soon because we were still revising the manual. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of an exploratory program. We didn't really know what the... At least I didn't know what the features of the programs would be because I was developing them. Mm -hmm. yeah, I really had no idea what I was doing. And then, so the tech pubs people kept having to do revisions, and they clocked those are billable hours within the company's economy. So they supposedly cost them a hundred thousand dollars to make the manual, but wow. hmm. so the the balance on it didn't look good. So the Autodesk didn't do any more science. Uh huh. But Glick, uh, I got to I saw Glick. You know, I got to hang around with him a little. I liked him. He's a very intelligent guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. Got to know him a bit. And then... Uh, over the course of the writing. Yeah. The, the chaos manual didn't... I wrote most of it, actually. And uh, it didn't exist in any form you could see online. And also the chaos software, I had it online, but it was a little hard to use it. Because mm -hmm. you have to run this thing called DOSBox, which is a you can run it on a Mac if you want to. So it makes a sort of face do fake DOS world, and then mm -hmm. you can run chaos inside there. And so, but then I got all gung ho, and there's this thing called GitHub, where developers put up software that they want to share. Mm -hmm. And so you put the source code and the executable there, and it's sort of more legit than just having it on your own site. So it's Git, like G I T, like I'm going to Git some. Mm -hmm. So I did the GitHub version of Chaos. And I checked with Glick. I'd always worried he wouldn't let me uh, put the book online because he had the. They gave him the copyright to it, but then he was actually very happy to have it be out. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's something good. I just did a month or two ago. Oh yeah, wow. So it lives on. So yeah, chaos lives. 
I think about chaos a lot. I, I reread Glick's book, and it's just, I'd forgotten how really, it's really one of the best science books I've ever read. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't believe how good it is. It is a beautiful book. Yeah. And over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of those people in there, and it's, it's cool. Just, I've been thinking about chaos, uh, like the news, you know, yesterday, or day before yesterday, about Trump firing uh, Comey. Mm -hmm. And then the contradictory stories, and the motives, and how so the Democrats hated Comey, but now suddenly they're defending yeah. him. It's just so chaotic, you know? Yeah. It's like the, the magnet pendulum. Yeah. And you know, it's just, and you know, and you totally can't track. Mm -hmm. And that makes me happy when the politics gets chaotic, because as long mm -hmm. as things are going according to plan, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Who's plan? You know. Right. So but it sort of seems like we're screwed now too. It's there's hope if there's chaos. If there's that chaos. something could break out of the. Yeah. Right. If it's chaotic, you know, there's some hope. Hmm. There's chaos is life. Mm -hmm. There's this whole thing in the study of artificial life where, you know, a crystal is dead, a gas. Mm -hmm. You probably know this thing. Well, it's this whole spectrum. Christopher Langton, Langton calls it the edge of chaos. Mm -hmm. So if you have a system that's like a checkerboard or a crystal, it's, it's not doing anything interesting. It's, okay, yeah. People's notion who don't really know much about computers thinks that's what computers are always like, you know, just very predictable. Mm -hmm. And then if you have, you know, just random fuzz, like static on your TV, or just gas molecules, that's, there's no, it's not very interesting, because it's sort of the same, it's just blah, blah. And then, but there's a sort of, like a, you can get a numerical measure of how disorderly it is. And there's this zone in the middle, where it starts being, rather than being re repetition, it might be doubly periodic and more complicated. Mm -hmm. And then there's this place where it starts to get really cool. And that's living processes are all there. Hmm. And society's that way. Everything in the world that's good is there. Hmm. You know? Because it's, it's like the Goldilocks thing, you know? <laughs> right. And so, if, if, if Trump was getting his way all the time, you know, it'd just be, it'd be horrible. Yeah. But... And you don't want to have anarchy, you know, where people might run into my house and kill me, you know, just so they could take my silver, you know. Mm -hmm. So there is this. Yeah, it sort of reminds me, I was just in Berkeley at this 60th anniversary conference of the, the Logic Group. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just sort of by happenstance on the first day encountered Fuzzy Logic, mm -hmm. which is the, you know, not the binary classical zero and one, but all the... The mm -hmm. gradients in between, yeah, which is sort of similar, and it's interesting. There was sort of this camp, and people were saying, "Oh, that's insulting to bring that up." And in this context, I mean, that's not what we do, and mm -hmm. you know, it's too fuzzy. Um, but then, sure enough, the second day, of the final, you know, the finale talk was Ron Fagan from IBM, uh -huh. and he's talking about his Fagan uh, algorithm, which. It's inspired by fuzzy logic, yeah. They've made it. Yeah, it used to be considered like a toy that didn't do anything. And, mm -hmm. and real logicians look down on it. Yeah, I think they still do to some extent. Yeah. Today. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have something they call Boolean valued logic, mm -hmm. and they feel better about that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, but it sounds better.
but the fuzzy logic does seem to be of the moment in a way. Like there's just this uncertainty and... Well, the whole neural net thing is really big too. That seems to be the future of AI. Mm-hmm. That they... Do you remember those pictures they, that were in vogue two or three months ago of things that would have eyes all over them? No, I somehow missed that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't spend enough time on Twitter, clearly. There's this thing that Google developed called Deep Dreams, and they had something that would, it just, it looked at all the images on the web, and it did some gnarly AI logic on them. So it would, it would do pattern recognitions on things that weren't patterns, you know? Like if you were really high and everything was looking like a face to you, mm-hmm. so it's a program like that. It'll just look at anything and it'll say, oh, that's a face. And then it'll hmm. tweak it up so you can see it. Right. But that's uh, that's using these multi-layered uh, neural nets that are becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I mentioned that. Hmm.